Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Okay, fine. I'll talk about the TPP. You know what? Like, guys, I try to keep this show classy, try to have grown-up conversations. But no, this relentless pressure for me to get in the gutter and talk about supply management. No, you want to hear about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, sexy topics like dairy taxes. Well, you win. We're going to do it. Um, we're going to talk about the TPP today, but not because I've been under tremendous pressure from listeners to do so, and not because the Harper campaign wants everybody to talk about the TPP. So far, so good for them. This has been a winning issue for them in the press, a huge international trade deal, which they tell us is going to mean nothing but wonderful things for Canada. That's not why we're going to get into it today. We're going to get into the TPP today because it is a media story, because the Trans-Pacific Partnership could have major implications for how we express ourselves on the internet, for who gets to look at our information and whether or not we're being surveyed by foreign countries. It has implications for things like copyright and content and what we can watch where and what punishments might exist for what we watch. What has not been discussed in this country about this still very mysterious trade deal is what it's going to mean for us online. So I am going to have that conversation today with law professor Michael Geist of the University of Ottawa. He is the Canada Research Chair for the Study of the Internet and E-Commerce. Wait for it. (laughs) 
This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Asad Chisti, Rob Anderson, Dredor, Kevin Swanson, Mark Leger, Martin Canrava, Megan O'Neill, Lauren Schaefer, and Paul Bucci. Paul, why did you decide to be awesome? I'm part of this prank factory called the Syrup Trap, and I like the idea that pranksters don't have to go on to get respectable jobs. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I'm not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode of Canada Land is also brought to you by CJFE, Canadian Journalists for Free Expression. They are a very small and very important and very potent and nimble little organization that does big things, big things like trying to reform our broken access to information system in this country. In this country, the way to get information for journalism, for private citizens, for researchers, is to ask for it through the ATIP system. The only problem is, in recent years, government agencies and departments and organizations stopped responding, stopped responding in a timely fashion, stopped responding without redacting everything, or just stopped responding at all. CJFE is trying to do something about it, and I asked Tom Hennifer, who runs CJFE, about it. We launched this campaign to fight for more openness in government by reforming the ATI system. About 20 different civil rights organizations all joined on. We sent a joint letter. If you want to scare a politician, start sending them letters. They're not used to getting that kind of thing. Guys, I volunteer for CJFE. I am a member of CJFE, and you should become one too. Go to cjfe.org, click Become a Member, and find out about the perks and pub nights with journalists and the annual review all of which you will get when you sign up now. Membership is reduced by 70% for listeners of this podcast. Go to cjfe.org right now. Last minute note here that Julian Assange, showing no respect for Canada Land's production schedule or my weekend plans, dropped a full leak of the TPP's intellectual property chapter 
on wikileaks.org right when we were wrapping up this episode. Thanks a lot. Once this interview is done with Professor Michael Geist, I will have a quick update for you on what we have since learned following the WikiLeaks leak. I miss you. How you doing? We haven't spoken in years. We used to chat all the time about fun stuff like international trade agreements and digital policy, but now I'm covering the media. Who would have thought the TPP would go from being this thing that only tech geeks and policy wonks talked about to a major election issue? I'm not sure if it's a major election issue. I mean, certainly we've got at least a couple of the parties that would like it to be a big issue. And of course, we saw ACTA became a very big issue, especially in Europe, not so much here. We'll see if it continues through to the end of the election. It's certainly something new, and it's certainly something that we're seeing the parties having some different perspectives on it. But you're right. There were a lot of people talking about ACTA and the TPP for many years, and it's taken a long time to get mainstream media attention, much less real political attention. I mean, that's the thing, is that this went from, for years, digital rights people and people interested in copyright reform have been screaming that this is an issue, and there's sort of a very committed section of the audience, uh, even into what I'm doing now, saying, talk about TPP, and I you know, have trouble getting into it because it's, there's so much secrecy around it. And it's gone from this thing that nobody was talking about, it was very hard to broach, to headline news overnight. That's true. Although the frustration for those of us that have been focused, especially on some of the digital issues, things like copyright and patents and and privacy related issues, are probably still pretty frustrated because uh, from the perspective of the kind of coverage we get, especially here in Canada, it's tended to focus on things like dairy and the auto sector. And many of these other issues that I think are important get lost in the shuffle. So we're going to get to those issues because I think that for a lot of people, this is an, an entirely left field idea that this this trade deal that has to do with milk tariffs is a, a potential threat to freedom of expression on the internet. We'll spell that out as best we can. First of all, it's just interesting to see how the news cycle absorbs this new information and, you know, everything gets kind of very quickly, especially when you've got parties having to kind of like find their position on it. It's very clear what the conservatives' point of view is. Uh, this is the biggest deal ever. It's amazing. We're so lucky. If we missed this, we'd regret it. Guys, we can't tell you too much about it, but this is it's going to be huge for everybody. So you're welcome. And then the other parties are basically saying, well, we haven't seen it yet. So, you know, I mean, Mulcair is saying he's going to – he won't ratify it, but everybody's being a bit cagey because you don't want to look like you're turning down the best thing ever. But it's kind of a, a beautiful piece of political maneuvering because – only they know what's in it. That's true to an extent, especially if we start getting into the, the details themselves. I think in the last few days after the agreement, I think we have seen the NDP shift from what I thought was initially a perspective, at least in the lead up to the, the final bit of negotiation, to sort of say, well, we're not a blank check here. We, we're, we reserve the right to reject this if we form government to now a position that seems, frankly, much stronger against the agreement, regardless of what's in there. We're, we're going to stand up and we're going to reject it. The liberals are, are more akin to, I think, what you've described, taking a position that's not entirely unreasonable to say, listen, we don't even know what's in this thing. We're generally pro-trade, but without actually seeing what's in the agreement, it's pretty tough. It's frankly unfair to ask, ask someone to have a strong opinion about terms and conditions and an agreement that 
they haven't had a chance to see. Whereas, of course, the conservatives, as you suggest, are simply saying this is awesome for everybody. And for those that it isn't awesome for, we're prepared to hand over billions of dollars uh, in compensation without even having to necessarily even proven that you've had any losses. It's sort of a new milk tax, in effect. You know, they've got an answer for all of those things. All the while, it's going to be well after the election before we have even an opportunity to actually see the text. It's the conservatives' new milk tax. You should be working for one uh, for the Liberals or NDP. That's how you spin this. I don't mean to be conspiratorial here. In fact, let me not be conspiratorial because as the accusation goes, the Harper derangement syndrome, I don't think that Canada has the power to engineer things that a five-year trade negotiation could so perfectly reach uh, its conclusion or at least a positive point in the negotiation exactly at a time that is most politically advantageous for the Conservative Party, nor do I think that, uh, you know, I know for a fact that the Niqab decision, these things just are landing on their lap, and, uh, you, you know, you can't blame them for being lucky, I guess. Right, no, well, the, the suggestion, I guess I've seen it a couple of times now, that, that somehow this was engineered to sort of shift the discussion as part of the, the election debate just a couple of weeks before the vote is silly, quite frankly. In fact, we know that the Conservatives had the hope and expectation that the agreement would have been reached back in the summer during a round of negotiations that took place in Hawaii and were all ready to essentially launch the campaign and the TPP at the same time. So actually, the, the fact that it took place now wasn't even what their game plan looked like initially. They thought that this would have been an agreement several months ago and that this was something that they could campaign on throughout the campaign. Delays themselves isn't something I think they planned for. And if we look at some of the last holdup issues that took place in Atlanta during the last bit of negotiation, Canada wasn't necessarily a big player, at least with respect to some of the pharmaceutical issues. The deal that they reached and the one that was on the table was one that was already consistent with Canadian law. So we weren't the country that was standing in the way of all of this or that had the ability to try to engineer a deal. It was really one that was fought out largely between the United States and Australia. And I think that the the challenge, you know, that we alluded to before is that this has been an ultra-secret uh, series of negotiations over the years, and the only insights that we've gotten into it is through a series of leaks. Is that correct? Yeah, that's pretty much right. Governments do provide or have provided some updates after each negotiating round. And, and what they typically did, at least in Canada, was there was a call for those on the civil society side, those concerned with the agreement, uh, representing NGOs and academics and others. And then there was a separate call for the corporate associations and the like. So they would provide updates and they would try to answer questions, although quite frankly, most of the answers tended to simply reflect existing Canadian law and acknowledge that there were differences on various issues and simply, you know, state the, the line that comes up again and again, we're only going to have a deal if uh, it's in the best interest of Canada, whatever that means. Um, and that, of course, means really whatever you want it to mean, which is why the, the line gets used as frequently as it does. Uh, I do think it's important to, to note that this notion that this was secret and that's just the way things are when it comes to trade agreements, which, which I sometimes see critics say, what are you complaining about? Trade agreements are invariably conducted in secret. And the notion that this could all happen uh, in the open just isn't the way things are done. The problem with that argument and why I think it's, it's simply wrong is really twofold. First off, we do know there are insiders, especially in countries like the United States, where all the major lobby groups are 
on so-called advisory groups that gain direct access. In fact, in the lead up to the, the final bit of negotiating, U.S. negotiators met directly with the Pfizer's and the Eli Lilly's and the, the large pharma companies to say, here's what's on the table and, and try to work out, in a sense, a private agreement with corporations about what they were comfortable with as part of the deal. I mean, that's something that you or I or many of the other people concerned with the TPP, we don't have anything, of course, even close to that access. Well, that's still private. It's just private between companies and governments. It is. And and I think that two-tier level of access, I think, is, is fundamentally unfair. And, and what, of course, you end up with is an agreement that reflects those that have the inside access, not, not everybody else. But I also I want to make the point that a traditional trade agreement, I suppose one where you might be haggling over dairy access or the percentage of Canadian content in auto parts, perhaps that was conducted largely in secret. Uh, But if you look at what the TPP involves, 30 chapters involving things like intellectual property and privacy and uh, investor disputes and, and a whole range of issues in the environment, the kinds of issues that actually, if you look at how those sorts of agreements have been negotiated globally in the past, they're much more open. We've got UN bodies like WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. We've got the ITU, which negotiates the telecom provisions that are also, there's also a chapter related to that in the TPP, those are conducted in a much more open fashion. So the notion that everything traditionally happens behind closed doors is simply wrong. Most of what the TPP involves involves issues that in the past have been far more transparent, far more open. And yet in this instance, you take that closed approach and layer in that two-tier access and you end up with an agreement that I think quite understandably a lot of people take a look at and say, my concerns aren't adequately reflected in it. Let's address that part of it then. Beyond the the milk tax and what percentage of a car is Canadian made, what does the TPP have to say, as far as we know, about the Internet? Well, it has, I think, a number of, of implications for the Internet. And one of the challenges, just as a caveat, is that, again, we're dealing with either earlier leaks, so we don't have the final text, or we're dealing with whatever the governments have chosen to tell us. And I think it's notable that governments are telling their citizens, or different governments are telling their citizens different things about the agreement, or at a minimum are choosing to emphasize different things. So if we take a look at what the Canadian government has provided in the form of um, a series of summary documents that they posted almost immediately on their website. They emphasize different things than, say, the New Zealand government emphasizes. And it's sometimes very difficult to square what the Canadian government is saying from what the New Zealand government is saying, from what the Americans are saying, to what the Japanese are saying. Everybody is, in a sense, trying to play to the the home crowd, their own home crowd. We don't really know what's there, at least at the level of detail that is going to really, really matter until we actually see a text. In fact, I think one of the real concerns right now is that as they go through that final text development, there is still opportunities, I I suspect, for some amount of change and massaging of the language. Uh, And so again, those that have access have the ability to, to really steer that in a particular direction. Everybody else is left on the outside. And now even in Canada is being told, uh, if you're in any way critical of this, you're somehow anti-trade. 
So there are real concerns just right off the top. Okay, but that being said, we are de facto, we, we can only have a conversation in the dark because we haven't been, you know, brought into the light. So let's have that conversation. What are the concerns? Sure. So let's touch on a couple. Let's, uh, and I really want to talk, talk about, I think you have to talk about both copyright and privacy related issues if you're talking about the online environment. From a copyright perspective, probably the biggest change and one I think rather incredibly that the Canadian government doesn't even acknowledge in its summary document is an extension in the term of copyright. You'll recall, of course, in the United States, this was a big deal, the so-called Mickey Mouse term extension, where the term of copyright, which the international standard is life of the author plus an additional 50 years, was extended to 70 uh, under pressure from the Disney Corporation that wanted to keep Mickey out of the public domain. The irony there always being that the Disney built its entire empire on, on public domain works. On public domain itself, including Mickey. It's based initially on Steamboat Willie. And so the U.S. has sought to pressure other countries to do the same. That was a big issue in the TPP, where the TPP countries were roughly half-half. Uh, Canada, Japan, New Zealand, Malaysia, Vietnam were all at that life plus 50. Several of the other countries, mainly the U.S. and particularly the U.S. and Australia, Australia having previously entered into a trade agreement with the U.S., were at the longer term of life plus 70. Canadian government says that TPP is fully consistent with Canadian copyright law. The New Zealand government says we have to extend our term of copyright by an additional 20 years, and it's going to cost us more than $50 million a year every year in terms of the price that is paid for that term extension. So why would that apply to them and not to us? It doesn't. It applies to us, too. The Japanese have acknowledged that they're they're extending their term of copyright. There's really no reason to believe that Canada hasn't agreed to extend its term of copyright. Canadian government simply isn't acknowledging it, at least in the summary documents, and it hasn't even conducted the same kinds of economic costs that, let's say, New Zealand has. So New Zealand looks at this and, say, and, and acknowledges right up front, we think it's going to ramp up initially uh, in terms of the cost and then level off at a $55 million a year cost in terms of lost public access and additional fees that the public are going to pay. You're expressing this all in economic terms, but of course, the real cost is to the public domain, that there's another 20 years where works will be deprived from common use. And if we were to look at the economics of what does that lost public domain mean in a country that's one-ninth the size of ours— it's $55 million. Uh-huh. In a country like Canada, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in, in higher costs for education, as well as the loss that people have as we lose the public domain and the ability to use these works without further permission and the like. So the cost is huge, but it is so dispersed over everyone. We all lose, in a sense, when, when we lose the public domain. But we're not a dairy farmer. Yeah. Maybe we could get you know, the copyright uh, special interest could be bought out as well if we're vocal enough. But uh, it doesn't have the same optics as dairy farmers. It's true. I think that, you know, there are people who care passionately about copyright. And then there are other people who wonder why those people are, care so passionately about copyright. But I think that the, the big picture that everybody might want to pay attention to here is that it seems that what is being attempted here is to create a regime between participating countries, an international regime for trade on the internet, for intellectual property standardization that makes regulation of the internet under kind of one American-led set of philosophies and, and standards and practices around 
how information and business is done on the internet. Is that, is that an accurate description of like the big picture ambition of this deal? I think that's a fair characterization. I don't think we're talking about an internationalization of these issues. We're talking largely about an Americanization uh-huh. uh, because it's really the U.S. that has pushed on these specific issues. And if you're Peru or Chile or Vietnam or Malaysia or Brunei, it's not that these issues aren't important, but you'll look at the agreement as a whole and say, I'm willing to make that trade in return for a certain amount of market access. I mean, everything that's happened with the internet so far and the industries that have like just exploded on those new platforms has happened without a new world order global regime of internet regulation, internet governance. So anything that you are imposing now is in contrast to whatever the Wild West chaos is, as it often gets described, has yielded, which is like things have not worked poorly with the way that it's been. True. I mean, but, but listen, I mean, the U.S. would argue that that some of its rules have actually helped facilitate and foster that development of the internet. I would actually say that that what we're seeing happen, though, in a number of countries is that there is some amount of pushback against some of those principles and standards. So it's not to say that the internet hasn't served us well, but that there have been in its in sometimes hidden costs or real risks. And, you know, I think the Snowden revelations went a long way to revealing some of those. So, for example, from a privacy perspective, we're starting to see more countries really have a second look at the issue of complete data flows and data storage in the United States, where there's real concern that if I upload my, my health information gets uploaded there, my financial information gets hosted there, all my photos. All my personal information is somehow in the U.S. That's now, we learn, easily accessible to the NSA, potentially easily accessible to other parties through things like the USA Patriot Act. So we've seen countries say, hold on a second, we're going to start doing things like data localization requirements. You've got, se- you've got sensitive health information. You've got to store it within the local jurisdiction, let's say within Canada, as some amount of assurance that uh, it's not going to be put as at higher risk. So how does the TPP challenge that? What does TPP mean for surveillance? It means, I think, a lot for that because there is a provision in there that bans data localization requirements. Uh-huh. So it's all about free flow of information. Free flow of information is, is of course, great. It really does underpin the Internet. Uh, but sometimes there's a cost there that people aren't quite prepared to pay. And so even in Canada, we've had a couple of provinces establish data localization rules when it comes to health information. Uh, this says no to data localization. It says no to efforts that try to, try to stop at times, transfer of information in appropriate circumstances. And so we've just had the European Court of Justice rule that the privacy safe harbor agreement between the United States and Europe um, is invalid. And it's invalid because of NSA surveillance in a case that was launched by a single person against Facebook who was concerned about his data being transferred to the U.S. under this safe harbor agreement. The Court of Justice says the safe harbor agreement is simply inoperable given what we now know. Essentially that that uh, NSA spying supersedes your sovereignty. I mean, countries like Germany that have very strict privacy laws based on the history there and based on the Stasi, and and yet you enter into these information sharing agreements where information flows through uh, American servers, at which point it's susceptible to NSA surveillance. Really, you're talking about destabilizing the sovereignty, the ability for a country to set its own rules about protecting its citizens' privacy. There are huge implications uh, on exactly those lines. And so just as countries are starting to say, you know what, we're going to set some conditions, not because we're trying to to stop people from having free flow of access, but because there are genuine real concerns about 
surveillance, about the privacy of their information. And so long as the NSA or the U.S. engages in this activity in a manner in which the privacy protections of those individuals are, 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 are simply not there, they're, they're literally non-existent if you're a non-American once the data goes to the United States, we are going to set some conditions and restrictions. And yet the TPP steps in not only holding against data localization, but also any restrictions against data transfer. And so the kind of ruling that we just saw in the in Europe might well be off the table in a country like Canada or Australia or elsewhere, given the TPP. What about information? That's about information that's spreading where maybe it shouldn't be. There's also stuff in earlier leaked versions of the TPP that goes to, towards the opposite information that you're not allowed to convey. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically of this section that criminalizes the communication of corporate wrongdoing through a computer system. Like that's the language. It's It would be a criminal act to reveal corporate wrongdoing through a computer system. So those, those kind of computer crime online type provisions which are in there. And again, we don't know yet if it's if those particular provisions have survived. How is that computer crime? That seems like a limitation on journalism. I don't think it's computer crime. I think part of the problem, and this actually again speaks to this issue of negotiating essentially behind closed doors and in the dark, is that you end up with, you come up with an idea, and I, I don't know that they're, they're targeting journalism or individuals or whether or not this was seen as a legitimate sort of computer crime provision. But the problem is, if you're not engaging in a more open process where you bring the expertise in to identify some of these issues, you're invariably going to end up with mistakes. That's In fact, that's exactly what we saw with the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement. Not only did we have this large push against it, but when it was ACTA, when it was even CETA, the Canada-EU trade agreement, we're now seeing pressure against the EU trade agreement in Europe because of specific provisions that were agreed to behind closed doors. And once you find open this up, suddenly parties say, hold on a second, there's some big implications around companies being able to sue governments. You agree to this without ever really consulting, without ever bringing in the experts. We're not prepared now to agree to this. And so the risk and the irony of some of this is that governments say the only way that they can get the deal done is to put all of this behind closed doors. But yet, by putting it behind closed doors, they put the agreement itself at risk once it's finally opened up to the public. And some of the unintended consequences sometimes they might be intended, get revealed, and suddenly you get countries saying, hold on a second, this isn't something that we can we can agree to now that we fully understand the implications. Well, you're being generous that this is all, you know, just sort of, uh, there's no intentionality necessarily, but if you let stakeholders in, if you let civil, civil liberties groups in, if you let journalists in, anybody who might be affected by this to have a look at it and say, hey, you might not realize it, but this provision could mean bad news for us, and then you get a more open, transparent negotiation where you avoid those problems. Maybe there's stuff in there that's supposed to be in there. Either way, this gets signed... And then it's been so highly politicized. How does this stuff work? Not to get too wonky, but like, do we have any opportunity when this is going before parliament to make any changes to it once we actually can see what's in there? I suspect that this will all be presented on a take it or leave it basis. Um, and that's the nature of an agreement with 12 countries. Uh, if everybody gets to reopen this, then it, it never goes anywhere. Uh, that said, we're already seeing concerns expressed in other countries, particularly in the United States, where you've got some prominent senators and other members of Congress who are expressing concern based on what they know of the agreement and saying that they're 
ought to be an opportunity for some changes or fixes. Generally, I think for those that want to see the TPP passed, the, their best hope will be that this is simply up or down, take it or leave it. That is part of the problem with, again, closing all of this off. In fact, I appeared before a House of Commons committee on the TPP at one point in time, raised some of these concerns, and the response that I got from government MPs on the, on the committee was, well, listen, first of all, you're just talking about leaks. We don't even know if this is accurate or not. Of course, they, they would know, but uh, they wouldn't acknowledge whether or not the concerns were legitimate or not. And they said, in any event, there'll be plenty of opportunity to... St- hold on, let me... Hold on, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You were basing your critique on leaks, which is the only information you had. And you were speaking to MPs who had read the full document and their response was your your everything you're saying is only based on leaks and so they're trying to invalidate it on that that i mean that sounds like they're holding that debate in bad faith. Is there any other way to put it? Oh, of course the, the debate wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was just theater. I mean, I, I didn't have any expectation that that you'd have government MPs do anything other than say, we can't comment on an agreement that hasn't been concluded and isn't public. And if you've got leaked documents, we can't uh, comment on whether or not those are accurate. What frustrated me, of course, was that they turn around and, and then said, well, but... Uh, don't worry, there'll be plenty of opportunity to to come back and discuss what's in the agreement after there is an agreement and it's made public. But this goes exactly to your point. If this is a take it or leave it proposition, asking me to come back or asking anyone to come and now comment on an agreement once it's been effectively finalized through negotiation is just more theater because it's an express acknowledgement that they aren't going to change anything anyway. The real time to, to make changes and to factor this in is before you finish negotiation and they effectively preclude that from the public by not making any of this available. I mean, am I like really naive about how this kind of thing is done? Because it seems like the whole process you're describing, it seems completely antithetical to the way that we create policy. To have no ability for opposition parties to critique it, to have no input from the public. I mean, that's just not, unless, I mean, I guess they're, they're paying lip service. Well, don't worry, don't worry. It's consistent with our current laws. And you have strong reason to believe that it is not then they're writing new laws for Canada, but not doing so in the way that a democracy goes about writing legislation, writing new laws. Well, they get off on a technicality in that regard. So what they say is, we're not writing any laws right now. All we're doing is reaching an agreement. The changing of the laws comes afterward, after we've reached agreement, and then there's plenty of opportunity for more fulsome debate. But of course, that's exactly what they're doing. And that's what happened with uh, the Copyright Modernization Act is that uh, WIPO was agreed upon first and then the line becomes, well, we have to ratify our laws so that we're consistent with this trade agreement that we signed. Yeah, well, the standard position that they adopt will be one of you know, we'll, we'll do everything that's consistent with Canadian law. We're certainly willing to agree to that. And that, of course, sounds pretty reasonable. It's already been passed. You can sort of figure out what the Canadian position happens to be. The problem is we also know that as part of any agreement, you're going to have to make some changes to your domestic rules, whether it's in copyright or the amount of dairy that you let in. Uh, all of those decisions in terms of how far negotiators can go, how far they can effectively commit Canada to change, whether it's our privacy rules, our copyright rules, our rules for corporate lawsuits against the government or simply the amount of butter that enters the country uh, are all all take place behind closed doors. All aren't made available to the public, all in the name of this is how we negotiate. Uh, but yet the effect of this is to commit Canada to make a whole series of changes to its laws without any real input 
And that input only comes after the fact when you're told, well, if we make any, if we if we backtrack from this, then we give up the agreement altogether. All right, let's summarize here. <laughs> For those who've been trying to follow along at home, here are the possible implications. Our data could be much more vulnerable to NSA surveillance. Yes. Foreign companies can sue our government based on this trade deal? Well, foreign companies already are suing our government. And this is, is, again, one of the real understated elements here. We've got a company like Eli Lilly that is suing right now the Canadian government for hundreds of millions of dollars over some patent decisions that our court has ruled on. Um, With the TPP, we're going to see the prospect of those kinds of lawsuits expand dramatically. Copyright will probably be extended by another 20 years at great economic costs to Canadians and uh, the education sector, cultural sectors, that seems like that's going to follow. Yes. And there is this itchy little bug of a line about criminalizing the transmission of information about corporate wrongdoing through a computer system. Yeah. Have I covered the free expression internet ramifications? Are there more? Is there... Are there punitive measures for copyright infringement and breaking of digital locks? Is that opened up again? Yeah, there may be more. Quickly, just worth again, I suppose, worth noting that in some ways, some of our, our rules, such as digital locks, already were created with the TPP in mind. And so we were late to the TPP. The U.S. actually set essentially terms and conditions that allowed us to even enter into the negotiations. So some of the changes that we've already made around copyright, things like digital locks, are there in large measure because we already committed to doing that, even to just be at the TPP table. So the changes that you see in the TPP aren't really limited to what's in the TPP itself in terms of what we might have to now change. But we've actually already made changes anticipating the TPP as as sort of that price that the U.S. said, if you want to come and be at the table, here's your entry ticket and the price that you're going to pay to be able to get that. And so we've already made some of those digital lock changes. This actually creates some new criminal provisions associated with what's known as rights management information, which is a form of digital lock. It potentially actually requires internet providers to engage in content blocking without reviews of Canadian courts. Again, we don't know if that particular provision survived, but earlier leaks had it in there. Content blocking. Content blocking. So the implications of this are really, really big. And uh, not only do we not have the text, but for the moment, we've got a government putting out a sanitized summary that neglects to even reference most of these issues. Professor Michael Geist, uh, it's uh, a pleasure speaking with you as uh, it's been too long. Thanks, Jesse. It's always a pleasure. Okay, so thanks to WikiLeaks, we have some insight on some of the speculation, some of the mystery in the TPP, and it is exactly as bad as Michael Geist feared. Maybe even a little bit worse because, yes, Canada too will be extending copyright terms by 20 years, but unlike New Zealand— We'll be doing so immediately. New Zealand was able to get some wiggle room. They negotiated an eight-year delay in that extension, eight years where they won't be incurring that $50 million a year expense. In Canada, where the cost will be at least $100 million a year, there will be no eight-year delay. What else? Increased criminalization of copyright violation. It is already against the law to tamper with digital locks in Canada. It will be more so. It is inconsistent with Canadian law to be ramping up criminal punishments, yet that is included in the TPP. Finally, the intellectual property chapter of the TPP leaked by WikiLeaks tells us that Canadian internet service providers will be asked by government to remove content from the internet 
without the need for a Canadian court ruling. What that means is if a foreign court decides that something needs to be removed from the Canadian internet, the government will ask our ISPs to remove it. And given their track record, you can bet that they will. And that other provision that I mentioned in my interview with Michael Geist about making it illegal to talk about corporate wrongdoing, that is not included in the chapter on intellectual property, but it wouldn't be. That would be in a different part of the TPP, so it may well still be in the deal. And that is what we have learned about the final language in the TPP. That was your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. Email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The website is canadalandshow.com. Come check it out. We've been posting these hilarious videos by Scott Roman. The crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode was produced by Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land Commons, which will be the last episode before the election, will be out on Tuesday. The next episode of Shortcuts will be out on Thursday. And if you live in Toronto and want to hang out with some other human beings on election night, go to our Facebook page and check the events. We are hosting a live taping election viewing party in Toronto at the Monarch Tavern on election night. If you like this show, please support it. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a campside media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.